One of the many things I love about serving this congregation, about the way that we do spiritual community, is that I do not have to change a single article of clothing on my body <laughs> when I go see Bruce Springsteen in concert tonight. <laughs> now, I've reached that stage in my life where I'm that 40-something guy. When Bruce comes to town for two shows, I'm there at both shows. I'm not missing it. So tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow night. At the beautiful ballpark in South Philadelphia, I will be there. I will be there to see a force of nature. Bruce Springsteen is 62 years old, and last month he did a four-hour and six-minute concert. He routinely gets out there and plays for three hours and 15 minutes, three and a half hours. It is amazing what he does. And one of the things that I think motivates him to do what he does so well, especially at this stage of his life, is because he recognizes Immense changes have been happening. Rites of passage have been happening in his life. Indeed, the band that he leads, the E Street Band, the famous, world-famous, infamous E Street Band, has lost a couple people over the last couple years. Danny Federici, who played organ, and of course the big man, Clarence Clemens, they've both died. During this most recent tour, and of course I saw him again in March, seeing Bruce three times in a year is not nearly enough. I could see him five, ten times, I would. But three will have to do does this song, beautiful gospel tin song, My City of Ruins. I think many of you know it. And it's a song about dealing with difficulty. It's a song about dealing with despair, with those moments when our lives lack hope. And at that moment, he introduces the entire band. And he really what he's saying is we're all in this together. It's not just him. It's all of us together. Now it's like a 17-person band. And when he gets to Danny's place and to Clarence's place, music gets very quiet. And spotlights shine down on an empty part of the stage. And to that point, well, some of us who are there start to shed a few tears. And he goes into this recitation, almost an incantation, talking about Danny, talking about Clarence. If we're here and you're here, they're here. If we're here and you're here, they're here. If we're here and you're here, they're here. You can join me anytime you want to. If we're here and you're here, they're here. If we're here and you're here, they're here. Don't lose heart. Don't lose strength. Don't lose hope right now. If we're here and you're here, they're here. Yeah, I know you're not going to sound as loud as we're going to sound tonight at the ballpark, but let me hear something from you. If you're here and we're here, they're here. I think the reason... That Bruce does this incantation, this recognition of the beloved departed during this song, My City of Ruins, is that he's trying to say when our lives get difficult and when we lose our orientation, when we lose our focus, when we're trying to remember who we are and what we stand for, when we feel lost, return to what you love, return to who you love, and you'll find a way to live. That's the meaning of today's movie. This final spirit flick of the summer, this movie, Beginners. And it kind of sets up for some of the things I'm going to talk about in my first message series in the fall, which is about maintaining that beginner's mindset, maintaining that freshness, that openness to our lives. So today is kind of a prelude for some things I'm going to unpack over the next month or so. This movie, I absolutely loved it. It's a tie this summer between Moonrise Kingdom and Beginners for the favorite movie that I have seen. It's about a young man, a young man about my age, and still a young man, I think, Oliver. And it's a story about him and his dying father, and that actually during the movie, his father, Hal, has already died. The movie hops back and forth in time, 
kind of parallel lives in time between his father's life and his life. Now, his father, Hal, has a fascinating story. A few years before we focus on Hal's life, we see that Hal's wife has died. Oliver's mother has died. And Hal has a bit of news to give to his son, Oliver, which is that he has always known, Hal has always known, that he's gay. And while he liked, indeed loved his life with his wife, he says he no longer wants to be theoretically gay. And he comes out. Comes out and finds a boyfriend, finds another love of his life, becomes politically active in the fight for GLBT rights, finds a congregation that affirms the integrity of who he is. And while all this good stuff is going on, we also find out that Hal develops terminal cancer. It's a story of death and rebirth of love and hope and loss, this movie. And I, I love that the title, Beginners, is also refers to the fact that Christopher Plummer, I think we all know the sound of music, every Thanksgiving, all that, by the way. Uh, Christopher Plummer, do you know what he called the sound of music? He was not a, fa- uh, a fan of it. He called it the sound of mucus. <laughs> and for if you were like me and had to li- watch it year after year after year, I think we can, or at least I could, uh, you know, agree with him. But he won his first ever Oscar in his late 70s, his first ever Oscar, something new, something fresh, something that was a beginning for him even later in his life. Now, as I talked about in the movie, there are these parallel lives back in time when Hal was alive and Hal's marriage to his wife and Oliver growing up and then Oliver's life after his father has passed away. Now, Oliver is entirely supportive of his dad's new life, his striving to live a life of integrity. And at the same time, he is, shall we say, somewhat stunned by this revelation, by this news about who his father really is. And as life-affirming as Hal, his father is, Oliver's a kind of person who actually seems to have a lot of difficulty in living. He complicates unnecessarily his life. He's got kind of a melancholic temperament, and he seems to be going through something of an identity crisis as well, too. He's a graphic artist, and so he puts together little uh, sketches like this. You might be able to read that, but he writes this after his dad has died. My personality was created by someone else, and all I got was this stupid T-shirt. He's funny, Oliver is. He tries to make sense of his life. One of the things that he receives from his father is a little Jack Russell terrier named Arthur. It's like the dog in Frasier. It's one of the most human of all dogs. I mean, they look at you like they're really about to break in a conversation with you. And on the screen, we see little subtitles of either. It's kind of a magical movie, so it could actually be Arthur talking. It could just be Oliver projecting onto the dog, in which after Oliver meets a young woman who he starts to fall for, uh, the dog says things like, Is this a brief speck of light before the darkness envelops us forever? (laughs) As the, uh, as the, uh, uh, the the relationship between them starts to uh, deepen and continue, at one point Oliver looks down at the dog and Arthur the dog looks up at him and says, are we married yet? (laughs) But this is the problem with Arthur, excuse me, uh, Oliver is that he, he complicates his life. He has difficulty orienting himself, particularly as all of us do, I think, as our relationships deepen and become more complex over time. And he finds himself, not because he wants to, but because he cannot articulate exactly what he wants, moving away from this wonderful young woman that he's met named Anna. Now, Anna has a very different approach. Anna kind of gives the mission statement of this movie. 
She says at one point to Oliver when it's clear that the relationship is starting to deepen and become more complex. She says, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I want to be here. Those are some of the best, wisest words I've ever heard. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I want to be here. I think we can all learn the wisdom of that in our lives. When we find ourselves in that moment when life becomes terribly complex and we're wondering emotionally if we can really handle it and our hearts feel like they're going to expand so much they're going to burst, to return at that moment exactly as Anna does, saying, I don't know how to do this, but I want to be here. That ability, that capacity of the soul is the ability to get in touch with our core intentions our ability to get in touch with the first things that many of us set our hearts upon, love, connection, loss, death, hope, all the biggies. And to be able to return to those things has a clarifying effect upon how we can live our lives. And it helps us learn to manage that anxiety that we may not know how to do what we believe our lives are calling us to do. And sometimes when we experience that, we start inventing all kinds of excuses for ourselves. We start saying, well, I didn't really want it anyway, a little bit of sour grapes. Or we start saying, you know what, the expectations of me are unreasonable. And they may be from time to time, but we really got to check our anxiety and our resistance in those moments when we're fearful that we don't know how to do what is called forth from us. This ability to put first things first over and over again in our lives comes down to really a simple question we want to orient ourselves. Where is our care? Where is and who is what we love? If we can stay in touch with those things, we will find ourselves, even if we feel rudderless, maintaining and refining an orientation. There's a story that Tara Brock, one of my favorite teachers, you've been around for a while, I talk a lot about her. She's a meditation teacher and also a psychotherapist. She tells a story about working with a woman, both in meditation and as her counselor. This woman's husband is dying. And she's working with her over a number of months as her husband is dying. And when it gets close to the end at one point, um, this woman is caring for her husband as he's literally on his deathbed, although he's still cognizant and conscious. And he starts in one day saying, you know what? I'm really not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. You know, he's opening that space of that conversation about first things, about ultimate things, about stuff that matters. And she immediately kind of barges into the conversation saying, you've had a good day, dear. How about I make you some tea? And the woman says in that moment that she could see her husband shrink back into himself and grow silent. She relates this story to Tara and Tara says, how can you vow to say yes to your life? How can you vow to give consent to what is present right there so the next time your husband opens up that line of inquiry with you or you with him, you're able to say, I don't know how we do this either. Or maybe even, I'm afraid of your death, even if you're not afraid of your own. But to stay there in those first things and not rush into busying ourselves but to stay present in our lives. You see, when we make room for the basics, for the essentials, for the first things, for love and death and loss and hope and connection and sadness, when we find that we have this ability, in practice, it totally transforms our lives. 
It wakes us up and it gives us a sense of beginnings even when we may be at our seeming end. I've told some of you who've been around for a little bit this story. It's my first teacher, my first and in many ways best teacher in the ways of leaving this life mindfully and open-heartedly. It's a man in the summer of 1996 when I was a hospital chaplain who was a doctor who was dying at a very young age, his early 40s. And I would go see him day after day after day in his hospital room, and this would be the last bed that he would ever inhabit. And what he had done was he had started to put up all throughout his room. I'm just showing you a few of the images that I remember. He had started to put up all throughout his hospital room pictures of places that he loved in his life. His first things, Rome and the wilderness and music and the oceans. And when I would walk in, I would hear very often Bach or Brahms or Mozart. seeing him day after day, week after week, a couple months before he died. I got a sense this man was intentionally staying in touch with who and what he loved the most so that even at his end, he could remind himself, these are my first things and these are the things that I love that made me. When we stay in touch with the things that we love that make us, even in difficulty, we are not lost. I remember the final moment of his life, his aged mother who barely spoke any English and his partner around their table, they could not communicate, they did not need to speak any words. And as he was breathing his final breaths, I mean, the first thing that any of us do when we live is we take a breath as he was literally letting go of the life force. We were all touching his arms, his hands, his body. It's really the perfect ending to what we did earlier today. Touching a new life, touching the end of life, making our lives sacramental, not in the sense of any church, but in the sense of getting in touch with who we are. In many ways, I think back to that doctor, that teacher of mine, and what he was setting up there reminds me of one of our pieces of our DNA, our core values and beliefs, that each of us are very much like a caterpillar in the chrysalis who can find their way into that new life that is inside of each and every one of us. There's a caterpillar image in the movie as well, too, that's very, very conspicuous. Uh, and whenever you see a caterpillar image in a movie, it always means transformation. Now, one of the things I got to believe about a caterpillar who goes into a chrysalis is they don't know exactly how. They just know a really big change is about to take place. They build their chrysalis, and then they let go. <laughs> they say, come what may. To trust in this transformation is one of life's greatest lessons. And it's an interesting lesson because it is much more about unlearning than it is about learning. It's more about changing our framework than it is about adding to our storehouse of knowledge. I, like some of you, walk a path of recovery from addiction. Now, one of the promises made to those of us who walk this path, although I think it applies to anyone who has worked with learning how to be free, 
how to be free to love. And I, so I think that's just human work for every single one of us. But one of the promises made explicitly to those of us who walk the recovery path is that we will intuitively know how to do what used to baffle us. Coming up on seven years of sobriety, I have found that to be absolutely 100% correct. <laughs> Things that used to scare me and frighten me and cause me to regress into fantasy or fear or resistance to my life, these things are just easier now. I think it's a truth for all of us, which is simply learning how to get out of our own way. It's one of the things that Oliver has to learn in the movie, how to get out of our own way, how not to lose touch through fear or fantasy, trusting, really trusting in a deeper way than with our thoughts that each of us has the capacity, that inherent wisdom to face the truth of our lives. It is open to absolutely everyone. I got to tell you, this is really difficult, this truth, this truth of learning to trust transformation, of unlearning rather than learning. It is really difficult for those of us with privilege, racial privilege, economic privilege, social privilege, because with privilege becomes the desire to control our lives, the desire to want to make sure that things are the way we want them to be. I think this is, in fact, one of the deepest lessons that the teacher Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, taught us when he said it is as difficult for a rich man to get into heaven as it is for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. Now, it's not, I think, that Jesus disliked wealthy people. I think he's just saying that if we have privilege, we better watch it. <laughs> Because we will want to control our lives and we will resist sometimes that getting in touch, that unlearning rather than just accumulating learning that is our cultural value. It is not counterintuitive to unlearn, but it is countercultural to unlearn. We're taught, we're graded. So many of us, including me, have gotten where we are in this life because we got some good grades. Because people approved of our performance and I'm not negating the value of that I'm just saying at certain times of our life if we only live that way We will not be able to face the truth of our lives really what jesus was saying We would say in more mo more modern terms more money more problems And sometimes those biggest problems are a desire to want to control Everything that goes on around us and even more to control everything that goes on within us because we may not like what we're feeling Rumi perhaps the greatest poet of the soul, put it this way. He talked about there are two different kinds of intelligence in life, and each of them have their own integrity. But he said these are his words. There are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as the new sciences. With such intelligence, we rise in the world. You get ranked ahead of or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. You stroll with this intelligence in and out of fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets, or if you will, your computer tablets, your iPad. There is another kind of tablet, however, one already completed and preserved inside you. A spring box overflowing its spring, a freshness in the center of the chest. This other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It is fluid and it doesn't move from outside to inside through conduits of plumbing learning. This second knowing is a fountainhead from within you moving out. 
What Rumi is saying here is that with the second intelligence, the intelligence of our first things, it is more about giving permission rather than manufacturing meaning. I mean, so many of our metaphors in life are about building the meaning of our lives, working on our projects, constructing our identity. But the second kind of intelligence is about merely allowing and letting our native wisdom to flow. Not building, maintaining, creating, but simply recognizing that we have so many things already within us. It is really to practice who we already are. We can do this in a variety of ways. We can do this, as I'm going to do it tonight, simply by celebrating the joy of this life as I love to do. That's why I go to Bruce Springsteen concerts. I love the music, but even more, I need to celebrate this life. I was born with an abundance of inherited sadness, as a guy named Ryan Adams once said. I need to learn how to celebrate my life. For some of us, we find it in nature. We find it in nature when we are in the presence of what awes us and makes us small, but not in a way that minimizes us. Some of us find it in ways when we get in touch with our lives simply by learning intimacy with our own thoughts and the content of our own hearts. A really powerful way to learn to do this because we recognize in the midst of this that we've lost touch is when we are sitting with a friend and they're talking and we hear ourselves inside our brains start to construct our response. To recognize that we all have that tendency and to learn to kind of let that go. And to return our focus to the present moment. This is a beautiful thing that happens in the movie. My favorite moment of this movie, Beginners. When Oliver, recognizing that because of his own inability to stay in touch with his life, he has broken up with this young woman, with Anna, who he really loves. And he has to leave Arthur the dog with someone so he can fly across the country to see if they can reconcile. And he decides to leave the dog with someone that the dog trusts, who's Andy, who is his father's now former boyfriend after Hal has died. And they experience a kind of awkward moment, Oliver and Andy do. And as after he has dropped the dog off, Andy says to him somewhat tentatively, you've not been to see me. You've not been to see me because I'm gay. And... Oliver says, no, I've not been to see you because my dad loved you too much. He's resisting his own heartbreak. He's resisting getting in touch with who his father loved, not because he dislikes him or because he's bigoted, but because sometimes to experience our own broken hearts, all we can do is say, there it is. And we simply have to get in touch. In that moment of reconciliation between them, there are no words, and they simply embrace. And I was pretty much close to sobbing in that scene. So for many of us, the rest of us who today may not be dealing with the death of someone we love, may not think that we are resisting our own heartbreak, may not be resisting our first things, how do we mindfully return to our first things, to our love, our loss, our hope, our connections. I think it's directly related to this ability. If you've ever seen this, we got to mind the gap. Mind the gaps, that place that we cannot fill in with our expertise. 
I know I experience this when the following happens. And, you know, just kind of nod your head silently if this ever happens to you. That, you know, you've had a disagreement or a hurtful interaction with someone you love or someone you trust. And you find yourself starting to, shall we say, uh, project onto them. This is why they did it. We find ourselves maybe inventing a narrative about their motivations. Find ourselves building even more of a gap between ourselves because we cannot simply say to ourselves, ouch, this hurts, I didn't like it. To mindfully mind the gap in a day-in, day-out interaction with the people that we love and to recognize that sometimes we are going to do things and have things done to us that do not feel so great. It is to turn away from that path of inventing the narrative, of inventing the projections, of saying, you did this to me because, and instead learning to simply say, ow, or I'm sorry. And maybe even, what the hell was that about? <laughs> but learning to make an inquiry rathing rather than projecting. Learning to get back in touch with being in touch. Like Anna said in the movie, so much of our life returns to that moment, especially when the gaps open up. I don't know how to do this, but I know that I want to be here. It is the single biggest, I think, greatest, most important question we can ask ourselves because it's a question that we can never fully answer because it's a question that we must always keep asking ourselves. The most important spiritual question is not, were you there? And the most important question is not, where will you be? But the question is, are you here? And you know what? The minute we ask it, we have to ask it again. <laughs> because here is here. But when I just said here, that was then. So now I have to ask here again. You know, this sounds like a college freshman dorm room conversation starts to hurt your brain. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have to think philosophically about it. Are you here? That's the most important question. If we're here, then we can be in touch. And if we're in touch, then we can love. And if we love, then we can heal. And come alive. A famous rabbi died once, and his students were trying to make sense of his legacy, who he really was, what were his first things. And a question was asked What was the most important thing, the most essential thing to the rabbi? And one of the students piped up, the most important thing to the rabbi was whatever he was doing at the moment. May our most important things show up and be present as we are present in the ability to be here. Today, may we all be here. Not somewhere else, doesn't exist, but to be here. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine recreation, recreation of this universe, moment by moment, breath by breath. 
May we know our first things and show in love our first things again and again and again. Voting most profoundly not with our words or with our thoughts, but voting with our two feet that are able to stand or to sit present here in this life, rooted in the midst of all the complexity, even the difficulty, and also that great and abiding love that is as present to us as we are present to it. Amen.